welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, we have a lot to talk about, but before we get to that, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping you with everything you need to sew for your boat, from bimini's and boat covers to upholstery work and even sewing your own sails. Sailrite is your one-stop shop for fabric, sail and canvas kits, tools, hardware and sewing supplies. Sailrite is also the maker of the patented Ultrafeed sewing machine a portable, heavy-duty machine that can handle all the sewing jobs for your boat and more. A passionate crew of DIYers, Sailrite produces high-quality, free how-to videos to empower their customers to turn their sewing dreams into a reality. Well, I've had a busy few weeks here, so it's hard to get podcasts out (laughs) when I'm so busy doing everything else. Last week, I headed to Chicago. Actually, the week before last, I headed to Chicago had to go back for a one-day conference uh, for my actual job, investment management. It was a private equity conference that I went back for. So I went back a few days early and visited my mother in South Bend, Indiana, and my sister. But also I made an effort to drive down to Fort Wayne and actually do a face-to-face interview with Matt Grant at Sailrite and take a full tour of the company, which was interesting. And I will be putting that out uh, as a podcast oh, in the next few weeks when I get a chance to edit it. It was a live interview. The audio quality won't be as good as the normal audio quality because basically I just took a handheld recorder and put it on the table between us and then carried it around with me and made comments and talked to Matt while we were walking through the the facilities, including the facility where they put together their their sewing machines and then their their studio where they create their YouTube videos and then the full warehouse. It was interesting and it was nice to meet Matt Grant face to face. You know, you feel like you know these people because you've actually seen them in their videos a lot, but they don't know you. So it's sort of a <laughs> an interesting situation. So it was nice to actually sit down with Matt and and visit with him face to face. While I was in Chicago, I happened to visit with one of our listeners, Chris, who's also one of my clients now. We sat down and had dinner in Chinatown in Chicago, which was nice. And I have another client and a listener to the podcast, Ed. I didn't have a chance to see him, but I knew he was coming out here to go skiing with me. And we did that uh, last weekend. He came out and we we skied together. I think it was Monday. Yeah, President's Day we skied. It's good to catch up with Ed and Chris, and I like to visit clients. I had, I actually was supposed to be skiing with Craig yesterday, but after skiing on Monday and then I went skiing again on Wednesday, my legs were shot and I just didn't have it in me to go skiing for three days uh, in four, three, uh, ski three of four days. So I called up Craig and I said, well, next time you're out here, let's catch up. And he said, okay, that's great. But if you're going sailing this summer, put me on the list to be on, put me on the crew list if possible. And I did. He's on the crew list. I'm not sure what my schedule is going to be this summer, but this summer is probably going to be pretty well filled up before I even get to clients. I'm not really sure, but it's a, a summer that's going to be going up the 
Croatian coast up to Venice. I know my family wants to join me when I sail into Venice. And we'll see. We'll see how much open time I have for letting other people join me if they like. I did have, or I do have, an opportunity to do a transatlantic again. But this time it would be totally different. I don't think I'm going to do it. But here's, here's the situation. Here was the offer. A friend of mine at the Alta Club in Utah said, Hey, Franz, why don't you join me on my father-in-law's boat to sail across the Atlantic? And I said, Well, tell me about the boat. And he said, It's a 165-foot power yacht. And I said, Well, okay, uh, what would I be doing? He said, You'd just be hanging out. I said, How big is the crew? He said, It's about 14. <laughs> and I said, Wow, that would be a different experience for me. So I said, all right, how long would it take to get across? And he said, it'd take seven days. I would leave from Florida, I think around Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and end up just, uh, on, just on the French coast, a little island off the French coast, which is connected by a bridge, I think, to the mainland. And I said, all right, when would we be doing this? And he said, uh, we'd be doing it June 23rd. And I looked at that, and I looked at that, and I thought, well, that's going to put me on my boat. If I got on my boat after I sailed across the Atlantic on his boat, that would have me putting my boat in the water on the 1st of July like I did last year, and it was hot. And this year I plan on getting to the boat sometime in June. And I told him the other day, I said, I think I'm going to pass this year. He said, I said, maybe in the future I'll do that with you. He said, oh, we're doing it every year. I said, okay, great. I'll plan on sailing with you some other time. And I said, also, <laughs> which sounds a lot more interesting to me, if you're ever going up and down the Croatian coast or through the Greek islands and you want to invite me on that, that would be a different experience from what I do. I sort of feel sorry for these big mega yachts. They, they have these big mega yachts that show off the money that they have, but they really can't get into the little nooks and crannies that I can in my little boat. Now they can have the crew take the dinghy, which is probably bigger than my boat, and drop them off to shore. But it's just not the same. But <laughs> it's pretty comfortable. It's pretty comfortable. Maybe I'll do that sometime in the future. I, I got some information on the boat, and it is one of the fastest 165 foot boats out there. I think at maximum speed, it will go 70 miles per hour. Of course, they're not going to run it across the Atlantic at 70 miles per hour, but just seven days to get across the Atlantic, which is about 3,000 nautical miles, you're really clipping along pretty fast. Anyway, that was nice to actually get the invitation. I don't think I'll take them up on it this year, but possibly in the future. All right, let's get on to a few questions. Get ready for today's mailbag. I like getting emails from my friends out there, so if you have any thoughts, comments, suggestions, or questions, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. Now for today's emails. You know, every now and then I get questions on Facebook, and I'll be quite honest with you. I thought of shutting down my Facebook account. I don't like the company and what they do, but it seems like everybody's addicted to Facebook except for me. I very seldom look at the Facebook account. So if you really want to get a hold of me, don't leave me a comment in Facebook. You better write me directly, franz1 at medsailor.com. Or otherwise, it, uh, 
<laughs> I probably will never see it. Like I say, I'm not a fan of Facebook. I'm not a fan of social media in general. I believe if you want to talk to somebody, write it directly. And I think Facebook is uh, basically uh, an organization designed to get as much information about you so they can monetize it to their advertisers. And I don't want to be a part of that system. I got an email this morning from Tony Booth, and he sent me a link to a company called DocStartThrusters.com. And I took a look at it. He wrote, he wrote uh, Franz, great podcast. I have a Pacific Seacraft 25. I know your pain of reverse and confined spaced handling. I think I've found an inexpensive solution for us. It is at DocStartThrusters.com. D-O-C-K-S-T-A-R-T-H-R-U-S-T-E-R-S.com. Let's all know what you think. Best of everything. Well, I took a quick look at the website, and it looks interesting. It's a, it's a gizmo that goes on a track either on the front or the back of your boat. And when you want to go from side to side, you would lower this down. It's electric-powered, and it's got a couple propellers, which would tend to thrust the rear or the front of the boat, depending on where you put it, one way or the other. You know, on regular bow thrusters, they actually have to cut a hole through the bow of your boat and put in the electrical uh, motor, run the wires and so forth. This would avoid that, but instead of doing that, you would have this big track, or not big track, a, a track on the front or the stern of your boat, depending on where you wanted to put it, or both if you wanted to put them both. And then when you wanted to go from side to side, you would lower it down on this track and then, and then engage it. Uh, it looks interesting. I will not do it because I would not want to uh, mar the beauty of my boat, I guess. That's probably the vain way of saying it. Uh, I don't think it, it doesn't look that good, but it's probably functional if you want to do that to your boat. To me, I'll just keep <laughs> having an adventure every time I reverse my boat. I'll just continue living the adventure for myself. But anyway, thanks, Tony, for sharing that with me. I did write the company, and I said, hey, you want to come on to the podcast and talk? And we'll see if they respond. Jonathan, who we listened to talk about <laughs> the Schengen Agreement, uh, I think a podcast ago, maybe two podcasts ago, wrote me, said, Franz, my citizenship papers are in limbo, so yet again, I must leave the country for 90 days. At this point, I'm trying to find a RYA school who offers a five-day, 100-kilometer, mile-building sale and take either in Turkey or England. It looks like England is the spot, and I would then find a direct flight to Turkey as it is forbidden, I land in the EU even on a leg of the flight. What a nonsense situation the Schengen Agreement is. Anyway, he asked, what harbor town would you hang out in for sailing opportunities and pleasantness in Turkey? He says, P.S., the Schengen rubbish may also have killed a boat purchase in Scandinavia. I have to wait until the end of May to go look at a boat. <laughs> Oh, you guys got to love your EU bureaucracy, I guess. I hope Britain doesn't back out of leaving the EU. Yeah, that's my opinion. Anyway, I wrote back, Jonathan, I said, listen, if you want uh, a big city, uh, Marmaris would be the place I'd go. It's going to have more opportunities for that sort of thing than probably any other 
town in Turkey. Uh, also from Marmarish, you can take some side trips up to Bosburn and uh, Ketchabuku. Um, so, I mean, Marmarish would be a good place. Either way, you're going to fly into Dalman Airport. The other choices, would, in my opinion, would be Gocek, which is a very small town, but has a lot of sailing around it. And that's probably the most popular sailing area in, the, in all of Turkey is the, uh, this little bay called Gocek. And just south of Gocek, very close to the little town of Gocek, is a, a fairly large town called Fethiye. And Fethiye is a delightful town as well. So Fetier is not going to give you as many sailing opportunities as Gocek will, but there's also a big marina at Fetier, and there might be some some courses that you could take out of Fetier. So there's actually three places you might consider, Fetier, Gocek, or Marmaris. And like I say, you're going to fly into Dalman Airport no matter which one of these cities you go to. The other choice would be going into mm, Bodrum, and Bodrum's okay. It's it's not my favorite town. It's uh, a lot of boom boom, a lot of tourists, a lot of stuff like that. I've kept my boat in Bodrum many times because it's got a, big, a great boat yard, yacht lift, and uh, I keep going. I kept going back to yacht lift over and over and over again uh, over the years. So I've been to Bodrum many times. But if I were to choose a place just to hang out at for ninety days, I. <laughs> <laughs> I know I wouldn't stay in one place for 90 days. I'd be traveling around. But those places, those towns you might want to take a look at. Got an email from Blake. Blake said, I'm wondering if you have suggestions for books to read about the cruising lifestyle. My wife and I have a dream of buying a sailboat in less than 10 years from now with our little one-year-old and hopefully a sibling. Caribbean seas and adventures in the Med are on our list of places to visit first. We have read the book Voyaging with Kids. Written by three families, at least one of which I heard on your podcast, I believe. I'm looking for similar books on advice and adventure. We don't need to be convinced of anything. We are both 100% ready to depart as soon as finances allow. But we love the stories of cruising kids and hearing how they all got on in the years at sea. And then he went on to say, do you do a podcast for the Travel Trade Exchange as well? If you do... And wanted somebody to talk to for the Southern Spain and Tenerife adventure, Tenerife adventures. I'd be willing to hop on the podcast one day, and and here's hoping I'll be able to be on the sailing podcast one day too. Just make sure you keep going with it for another five to ten more years. Ha ha. I don't know. I'll probably keep doing it, but it won't. It'll be less and less, <laughs> less and less episodes as I as I become busier and busier or older and older. I'm not sure. Anyway, I I looked at the book Voyaging with Kids, and no, I have not interviewed anybody from uh, any of those authors. I did hit their contact form and wrote them an email and said, listen, hey, I'd, I'd like to get you on the podcast. Let me know if you'd be interested. And we'll see if they respond as well. Quite often I throw out these invitations, people are interested, and then scheduling makes it difficult. I'm still trying to schedule with an individual in Australia he apparently lives in his van, and he doesn't have Wi-Fi, and he has to go into the library to get a decent Wi-Fi connection to be able to do an interview on Skype. And uh, we we arranged it. Uh, he, he actually arranged to do it, but that was a time when I was going to be out of town, and I couldn't do it with him, so I've got to reschedule with him. So it, quite often, it, especially overseas, it's, it's difficult to schedule interviews based on the difference in time. I like to do my interviews during the day in the afternoon 
my time, Mountain Standard Time. So for me, I like to do interviews anywhere from noon till about 5 o'clock, perhaps as late as 6 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Mountain Standard Time. And that sometimes works for people and sometimes it doesn't. And I'm not willing to come in in the evening after I've worked all day and do a podcast as a general rule. Sometimes I might. But usually I'm pretty shot by the end of the day. I work pretty hard. And (laughs) so I try to schedule the interviews when it's convenient for me as much as possible. (laughs) All right, but let's see if they come back on. As far as other books, I've got a section on the website. I'm pretty sure. I know I put it together a long time ago of suggested books. Some of my favorite books are the party books. And there's a lot of new books out there that I have not read. And I would actually like suggestions of authors that you've read, any of my listeners have read, who you think I should get on the podcast. Usually authors of books are more than willing to come on the podcast because they're looking to, to make sales of their books. And, you know, they're usually interesting stories to tell. So if you have suggestions for people I should interview, you guys write me, franz1atmedsailor.com, and let me know what you think and who I should interview. Uh, on, on answering your question about Travel Trade Exchange, that was my first website. Uh, it sort of failed. Uh, it failed for a couple reasons. My server, I, I actually had this website designed by a, um, by a website designer instead of myself. This is before I knew how to use WordPress. And he disappeared and I needed to change the site and it was impossible to change the site. And so I just deleted all the files associated with that. I still have the audio files for that, but it really wasn't taking off. I thought it would take off, but it really didn't. And my intention with that website was to have contributing stories, contributing narration from listeners. And that's also the intent of this podcast. A couple people have done that. Jack in particular. Thank you, Jack. And Neil Fletcher have done that. They put out content for this podcast, but that's all. And I'd like more content from listeners if you want to record your stories in MP3 or WAV format. Probably MP3 because waves are, WAV file formats are just too large to email. But if you want to produce some stories, if you have some stories to tell, the recording devices, the little Zoom handheld recorders, they, they create absolutely astounding audio quality. They have good microphones in them. You don't need much more than that, really. You really don't. Um, And anyway, you might want to put down some audio stories just for your own benefit and sharing with your own family as well as our listeners here. So if anybody out there wants to start recording their own stories about their sailing adventures, feel free to do it and let me know. Uh, Otherwise, you could always contact me and I can interview you. But sometimes you have some good stories to tell on your own. You don't need me to interview you. Anyway, that's that's it on that one. Yeah, I know there's a place on my website where I have uh, books that I've recommended. Some of them are pilots and some of them are sailing narratives. So look at the website, medsailor.com. Check it out. And again, if you have suggestions for that, let me know. <laughs> I say that, but every time I start working on the website, there goes three or four hours of my time. And so it, it's something that sort of falls to the back burner as far as I'm concerned. I've got too many other things to do to actually take care of my paying customers. <laughs> All right. What else do I have here? Oh, two things. 
This has nothing to do with the question from a listener, but I'm going to ask for suggestions. I'm renewing my insurance. And Pantanius, who I always dealt with in in Germany, told me they weren't going to renew my my insurance last year. They said contact Pantanius in the United States. I did, and when I did, suddenly my uh, my liability insurance policy went up four times. Ridiculous! So now my insurance for the boat is about twenty five hundred dollars for a year, and the boat's only in the water two months of the year. I asked my friend. Ed, what he pays for his boat, and it's a a little bigger than my boat, and he pays about $650, and his boat is in Lake Michigan. So there's the difference between Mediterranean sailing and U.S. sailing as far as insurance goes. It's ridiculous. Now, when you sail to Italy, apparently some of the marinas there require that you have a liability policy of $10 million. Yeah, that's part of the problem. Okay. All right. One last question. It was from Douglas. He said, hello, Franz. I've been enjoying your podcast, Whilst Deployed to Afghanistan. I'm interested in sailing the Adriatic. Please send me the KMZ files compiled by Mr. Vic to this address. Guys, I'm not going to go through my website and find the files and send them to you. This is from Douglas. You can go search the website yourself there or find the podcast and they're listed there on the uh, in the show notes. I'm not your secretary. Go look for it yourself. Thank you very much, Douglas. All right, I think that's it for. That's it for today's emails. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, or comments or questions, write me Franz One at MedSailor.com or use the contact form at the website. If you want to do me a big favor, you could become a Patreon of the podcast. I have a few listeners out there that are already patrons, and I'm looking for more. If you have some spare change that you could throw my way once in a while, please sign up at patreon.com backslash medsafe. And one more thing, if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast directory. All right, let's get on to today's episode. All right, well, today's interview is going to be with Alex Holmes, who's the director of the documentary Maiden. Now, let's not forget, I interviewed Tracy Edwards, I think, at the last podcast. And even though this is not really about sailing, I thought it was an interesting interview, and I'm going to share it with you if it's not up to snuff for what you're looking for. Feel free to just skip forward to the next podcast you listen to. All right. This is Alex Holm, the director of the documentary Maiden. All right. I'm at Sundance Film Festival, and I'm talking to Alex Holmes, who's the director and I guess probably the producer of the uh, the film Maiden, which is uh, the film about the first all-women crew to sail around the world in the Whitbread race. It was in 1990. Was that when it was? Uh, started in 1989, finished in 1990. Okay. All right. So I got to ask you, how did you ever come up with this project? Uh, well, uh, actually, I came up with it because my daughter was uh, uh, leaving elementary school, uh, graduating elementary school. She had just turned 11. And... Um, uh, they were having what they called a celebration evening uh, to say goodbye to the students who were leaving. 
and I, she's the, my, my youngest child. I have two older children, and I went with a slightly heavy heart, thinking there was going to be a lot of, a lot of applause, uh, a lot of certificate handing out, and some not great singing. Um, <laughs> I had been to two of these things before, uh, so I thought I knew the score. But this year they, they changed it up, and they had a guest speaker. And the guest speaker was Tracy Edwards. Uh, and I knew as she started to tell her story that this was not only a remarkable story but a remarkable character. Um, and by the time she finished, I was convinced that I wanted to m- make a film of this story, and I went up to her afterwards and said, you know, has anybody told your story? I thanked her for, for sharing it and asked if anybody had ever made it into a film, and she said no. Um, uh, I assumed that I was... Im- I was imagining a narrative film because, of course, a lot of the action happens away from the land and uh, this was in an era before the iPhone and people photographing everything. Um, But then she told me that they did have a camera on board and that they'd recorded the whole journey. Uh, And so that opened up the possibility of making a documentary about it, which I I was just very happy about because documentary is my first love. Um, uh, And, uh, yeah, that's, that's how it started. But what struck me on that first evening... As she told this story, what really convinced me was that it was a story worth telling was that a lot of the obstacles that Tracy was describing, uh, that she had to overcome even to get to the start line in this race, I felt that while those obstacles may have changed in their appearance, they were still there for, for women. And that my daughter, aged 11 as she was then, was going to face a lot of these same obstacles all over again. Uh, and that shocked me that while the world had changed and move on, um, uh, actually uh, there still wasn't a level playing field, that I still felt I had to encourage my daughters to uh, raise their ambitions, to, to sort of uh, believe in themselves, uh, and that the world would try and convince them otherwise, uh, which was not something I ever particularly felt about my son. Um, so for that reason, I thought this is a really significant story and an important story to tell now. Is this your first documentary? No, I, I actually, uh, like many British directors, I, I grew up making documentaries. Uh, so that's how I learned my filmmaking skills. I, I then worked uh, making dramatic films for, for 10 years. And then about four years ago, I made a documentary about Lance Armstrong, uh, in fact, uh, called Stop at Nothing. Uh, and that reintroduced me to documentary and I fell in love with it all over again and realized why I had loved making them the first time around. And so uh, the truth was I was kind of looking for a documentary project. Uh, but, but that wasn't my first thought when I heard Tracy tell her story. My first thought was it would make a great drama. Um, it was only when she told me that, that this footage existed um, uh, that I thought, oh, well, you know, that opens up an opportunity maybe to, to try making this as a documentary. So let's describe the, uh, the film. You have a lot of... of uh interviews with Tracy or members of the crew uh, on a, on a, just in front with a gray background and, and, and talking about the story. Was it hard? To, were you the one that was asking the questions or were you? So, so, so I, asked, I asked all the questions. I mean, I think it's a very, uh, when you're asking people to go deep, as I was asking them to go and to be very honest, I think it's very much a relationship that you have to build. You build it as the camera's rolling, they, it's, it becomes a conversation, much like you and I are having now. Uh, but you're really asking people to put themselves out there and to, to tell you their secrets. So it's important who's, who's asking the questions, that there's a relationship of trust there. Um, but, but my ambition when I approached the story was to try and make, uh, make the elements that we were going to use as simple as possible. 
to, to sort of strip away the distractions, so to really keep within the realm of um, of using just the archive footage uh, and these these really uh, simply shot interviews delivered straight to camera, no distracting context or background, um, so that the the audience you know really focuses on what the what the what the interviewees are saying and the story that they're telling. Um, and to try and make it as simple as possible. Obviously, making something simple is often more complex than making something complex, <laughs> bizarrely. Um, and we had to do a lot of work to uh, exactly uh, plot out how we were going to unfold the narrative to, to, to make it the most compelling that it could be and to explore all the different layers because I like to think it's a film that has, you know, it's partly about the excitement of the race. It's partly about the political battle that Tracy fought to even get to the start line and to be recognised as a legitimate competitor. Um, and it's also about the, their, the personal journeys of the crew and what they discovered about themselves in sailing around the world. Um, so to come up with a structure and a, a story that, that manages to take you to all those different layers was, was, a, was a challenge, but that's the, that's the, that's the joy of documentary making is that you sit in an edit room with your material and you work it and work it until it starts to emerge. And, and I was fortunate in that I had an a extremely talented editor, Katie Breyer, who had cut a film that I'd seen a few years ago called Virunga, which had achieved this... Uh, uh, multi-layered storytelling uh, with you know some some pretty challenging footage, um, uh, and I thought that if she could bring those skills to, to this project, then she'd be perfect. And indeed, she did, and, and more. So, how much time did you spend with with um, the people you interviewed ahead of time? I mean, would, were you spending a lot of time preparing, getting to know them, asking, finding the questions to ask? Because that's the hard part. Well, do you know? N- Interestingly on this, not very much. And in the past, I have built quite deep relationships with people before I interviewed them. And I certainly had a deep relationship with Tracy. I mean, from that first uh, uh, evening, uh, I heard Tracy tell her story. It was probably two, two and a half years until I actually interviewed her on camera. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of talking and uh, talking about the film and about why we were making it and what it should be. And a lot of looking at the footage and really immersing myself in the story. Um, but. And I think over that period, she and I had built up a relationship of trust. I was very lucky that she she, she did choose to trust me. Um, and that, fortunately for me, she passed that on to the other crew members. So they would say to her, I've been asked to, to, to give this interview. What's the score? What's going on here? Do you, should, you know, what should I say? You know, how much should I really tell them? Uh, and Tracy, uh, uh, I'm pleased to say, just said... Tell it all. Say everything. Say exactly what you remember, exactly what you felt. Don't hold anything back uh, because it's important that, you know, for posterity, we put down the fact that this wasn't uh, a walk in the garden, that there was struggle involved in, in, in achieving what we did. Uh, and the world needs to hear about that, too. So so actually, uh, you know, Tracy did a lot of the work for me by persuading these crew members to trust me. Um, and then... I think it becomes part of a conversation. I, I did, I did obviously reach out to them before before interviewing them briefly, but not to try and un, not to try and get them to relive it, not to try and uh, ignite all those memories again, uh, because I was actually quite keen to sit them down in front of the camera, and then what I wanted to do was give them time, uh, time that we could go through. I could walk them back through the story in detail, 
not knowing what I would want to use in the in the cutting room, but really take them into all the nooks and crannies of the story. And when you sit and talk to someone for you know hours on end, I mean, I think our shortest interview was over two hours long, uh, and, and I interviewed Tracy over several days. So when you talk to someone at length, uh, that bond, that conversation becomes very intimate, um, and. Uh, I think some of the interviewees found themselves remembering things that they hadn't remembered beforehand, uh, that they probably hadn't even thought about since they happened 30 years ago. And the fact that they were remembering them in the moment and these feelings were coming up for them again uh, gave an intensity, I think, to the interviews, which worked in our favour when we came to the cutting room. Um, so to answer your question, I didn't do a whole load of... Uh, I, I did all my research. I, I knew more about the race than they knew. <laughs> uh, or I like to think I did. Um, uh, but I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time with the interviewees before sitting down uh, because I wanted to get that freshness to their recollection in the moment. Uh, you also interviewed some of the uh, reporters at the time. And, and I liked how candid they were with their, their lack of trust that these girls were going to be able to make it around the world. Absolutely. And, and you know, I was blessed by their honesty, too. Uh, you know, that's really brave to, to not sugarcoat your, your opinions. But I, I think it's one of the advantages that um, uh, that uh, a lot of water having passed under the bridge brought us that actually uh, if this had been something that happened two or three years ago, then maybe they'd have been a little bit more sensitive. But but given that it was, you know, 30 odd years ago, then then uh, they were prepared to be as candid as the as the women were. Um, and 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 also, I think that, you know, uh, these journalists are now reaching the end of their careers and they they, they want to be honest about 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 the way the world has changed around them. Uh, so for them, I think it was important to acknowledge what the world was like then, uh, but then to also acknowledge that their minds were changed about about whether these women were legitimate competitors in this race. There was no question, I think, in their minds by the time they finished that they, they certainly deserved their place on the start line and on the finish line. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, that was a journey of discovery for, the, for, those, for those guys, too. As I, was, as I was watching this film, I wonder how much... I mean, I don't think you could have made this film two, three, four, five years after the race. I think the the memories of the race are mellowed by time and age. Well, I, I don't know about mellowed. I, I would almost say sharpened because uh, I think that, that, that uh, people try and manage the message of the race in the, in the years afterwards. Uh, and I think what happened here was that, that uh, uh, people didn't feel like they had to pretend the race was anything or their experience was anything other than it was, uh, that it was sufficiently far away ago that they could acknowledge all of it, all of its difficulties, all of its challenges, all the inappropriateness of what some of the male journalists were writing and saying at the time. Uh, all of that could be, could be acknowledged because it wasn't something that had only happened in the last few years where you would try and manage the message. Nobody was trying to manage the message here. Um, and I think that, for, for me as a filmmaker, that was a wonderful opportunity to, to have this raw, you know, human experience to work with. So is your daughter here at Sundance with you? Uh, I, I wish. Unfortunately, she's still in school. So <laughs> she's studying hard right now. Uh, but, uh, but I know, uh, you know, she loves the film and, and, and uh, you know, she's lived with it for the last four years, just as I have. Uh, you, do, you don't make a film like this without it uh, becoming part of your life. So, uh, uh, so I hope it's been a good experience for her, too. All right. 
Let's talk about the funding of making of the film. That's always the challenge for any documentarian. So talk to me about how you had this, how you were able to go about making this film. Well, we knew from the outset that the, that the way to make this film was to uh, try and do it on a, on a smaller budget as possible. Um, uh, you know, it was a labor of love, let, let us put it that way. Uh, you know, all the usual things of deferred fees and what, what have you. Fortunately, I was able to, to sort of uh, pay the rent by, by doing other work at the same time. Um, uh, but, but, you know, we, we wanted to keep the budget really tight. Um, uh, and we were very fortunate in that, that a lot of the footage we were relying on um, uh, was open source that we could get that that Tracy and a lot of the rights to the footage uh, so and it had been shot by members of the crew so you know that that made it possible for us to do a deal for the rights uh, with a sort of global deal for the for the rights with the owners of the the race um, and that ma- that helped us keep the budget down but then it was really about going out and trying to to also keep control of the film by not uh, uh, you know partnering with, uh, with with people who might take the might have a different agenda for how the how the how the film should unfold, and I think that was important for us um, in terms of our relationship of trust with Tracy, which really is the foundation of the whole film. That she, uh, you know, I think that if we had had to go out to uh, maybe a studio or something for for funding, then it, then Tracy might have got a sense that we weren't ultimately the arbiters of the the film itself. Whereas we were able to complete the film absolutely in our, on our own terms by keeping the budget as low as we did. Um, uh, financing it through our own company, New Black Films, um, uh, uh, you know, going out for, 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 for private finance, and then and then we could make the film exactly as as we wanted it, and, and then hopefully recoup some of that investment, which which I'm pleased to say we're in the process of now. It'll be a long road, but you know, you, you, hopefully the film will wash its face because I think it's going to find its audience. Can you talk about any distribution opportunities yet on this film? Yeah, so uh, in the U.S. and a number of other territories. So we we screened the film at the Toronto International Film Festival, um, and uh, uh, Sony uh, picked up the rights to the U.S. uh, and a number of other international territories there, um, and they have a plan to release it uh, late late April. uh, and you know they're great at backing these films, and they're great at uh, uh, at getting behind a project when they really believe in it. And, and it seems they they believe in this one. So I'm very grateful for their support. Um, uh, in the UK, um, uh, uh, we have a, a, a specialist uh, documentary distributor, Dogwoof, who've distributed some great films in the past, and who we as a company, New Black Films, have a great working relationship with. So they're releasing it actually uh, on International Women's Day, March the 8th. Um, so there's a good plan in place for that. And we've had good sales internationally. Obviously, there are countries where sailing is a, is a, is a, is a, is a bigger deal, New Zealand, Australia. So uh, we've made a good sale there. Um, uh, but also other markets are, are, are falling in line. And, and so I'm hoping that we will get wide distribution for this because the reason for making this was to share it with as many people as possible. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful story. Tracy is a remarkable character. Uh, we made it. We made the film so it, it would inspire a new generation. Um, so it's our fervent hope that we can get this in front of as many uh, viewers as possible, as many audiences as possible in theatres so that they can get that full experience and then obviously on other platforms too. So, so the, the film of the um, on-the-boat film that was made, was that done with 16 millimeter? No, actually, it was shot on SVHS. 
so this was, uh, you know, we were in that interim period between, you know, film and 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 uh, and digital. Uh, so it was all filmed on tape. Um, which you know isn't great for, for for quality, and also you know tapes get copied and dubbed, and so you know there are some bits of the footage that are that are very uh, 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 patchy in terms of their quality. But you know I think that there's also a rawness to that. Um, that this isn't this wasn't a polished exercise. This wasn't a well you know financed exercise. The the filming of this material, uh, and I think there's an immediacy that comes with it that is just really exciting. Um, we were also blessed that 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 one member of the crew, uh, Joe Gooding, who was the cook on board, uh, took on the responsibility for doing doing the bulk of the the, the, the filming. And we were lucky in two respects there. The first is that because she was the cook, she wasn't part of the watch system, so she could actually circulate around the boat kind of at will and so filmed lots of things that we might not have got otherwise. But the second thing is that Joe's a remarkable character with tremendous emotional intelligence. And she used that emotional intelligence in the way that she wielded the camera because not only did we have these exciting uh, adrenaline uh, moments of, of great seas and, and, and action and adventure, we also got this beautiful portraiture of the women on the boat. Uh, Joe would let the camera just linger on a character and you would start to really, you know, you could see that she was appreciating what was going through that, that person's mind and that translated itself onto the tape and, and, and allowed us to bring those characters to life in the film. So it's been great. Do you have anything else I need to cover before we call it an interview? I don't think so. Like I heard Tracy say, I think I've said quite enough. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Really appreciate you being here. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.